the next episode of Nerd Flicks and Chill will start in three, two, one, zero. Hey everybody, this is Nick. This is Carrie. And we are Nerd Flicks and Chill, and we're going to continue our Game of Thrones revisited series in this episode, talking about season two. So that's pretty exciting as we kind of build up towards this eighth and final season that is on its way. But before we get into our recap of season two, Carrie, where on the planet Earth are you this week? I am currently in Bologna, Italy. Nice. Are you enjoying lots of Italian food, wine? Oh my gosh, yes. It is everything that I could have hoped for and more. The food is even better than the best Italian restaurant you could go at at home. Even in the mall. I was at a mall in the food court and had hand-rolled pasta. Awesome. It was amazing. Hand-rolled tortellini. It was this this meal deal. You know, you usually go to like a, a food court and you get a meal deal of like, you know, burger, fries, and a Coke or something. No, this was a meal deal of hand-rolled pasta, a deli platter that came with cheese and salami and parma ham, which is amazing, by the way, uh, traditional fried bread. Um, and it's almost like... um non-sweet donuts because it's like these little squares of bread that's kind of been puffed up and fried so good don't see that enough at any italian restaurants back at home it's amazing to basically have be served donuts and salami for your appetizer um (laughs) and then i got uh some water and then of course an espresso to finish and it was like 13 euro at a mall food court, and it was amazing. Nice, nice. Yeah, it was Sounds so like good. Sounds like the adventure. Yeah, I've I've been really turned on to the coffee here. I mean, I love coffee anyway, but the espresso here is better than I've had anywhere else. I just need a little bit of sugar in it, and that's it. And it's <laughs> so good. Nice. That's awesome. It's heavenly. <laughs> And how many more days are you in Italy? Well, I just completed my first week in Italy, and I'm here for two more weeks. And I still have lots of wine and pasta and chocolate and coffee to consume. (laughs) Awesome. Um, Because right now I'm in Bologna, so of course for dinner tonight I had tagliatelle pasta with bolognese sauce because I'm in Bologna. And that's the thing that's amazing is that so many things you associate with Italian food, obviously, is so dumb and it seems so obvious, but it's like you look at the city names and it's like Parma. Oh, that's Parmesan cheese. Parma ham comes from there. There's a town called Gorgonzola. Guess what comes from there? Guess what they created? You know, Gorgonzola cheese. It's like you're getting it from the place that this stuff originated and it tastes unlike anything you've had back at home. You know, it's, it's just, it sounds so silly and obvious. Like, well, duh, you're in Italy, but it's just, it's, I don't know. It's just, it's so much more flavorful and, and just amazing. Like I said, even mall food court pasta is incredible. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, let's jump into our season two kind of revisit that we've done 
as we've been going back and rewatching the show. What's interesting too is we get into this kind of, you know, recap of season two. Some new stuff has come out in the news over the last couple of weeks that sheds a little bit of light on season two. Interestingly enough, involving, you know, Daenerys's, uh, you know, not just her story, but Amelia Clark, the actress who plays her, had this huge issue with a kind of a life-threatening brain aneurysm that she recently wrote this essay about that appeared in The New Yorker. Uh, I thought that was a pretty shocking story because it didn't really come through on screen, but she was really going through some stuff in her personal life at that time. Yeah, I was blown away, and it just... uh, it, It just makes me appreciate and just be astounded at her professionalism. You know, it's like she had, you know, the task at hand with, you know, she's doing her job and she's, you know, doing the work and she's doing her press and everything and she's not bringing it up. And I think so many people would, I don't know, just be really open to it and, and, and talk about it, you know, first thing. And, and I think there's some people that would even maybe use it as an excuse or something. And it just wasn't even on the table. She just didn't even talk about it and kept it very quiet. And, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing to read what she went through at, at the age of 24 and almost did not survive. It shouldn't have survived it. Right. You know, and it's, um, I mean, for anybody to go through it, that's, um, a life changing thing. But to think of, wow, she was in the midst of having a career life changing thing happen and then, you know, a medical life changing thing. And, and I can't even imagine the highs and lows and the amount of stress and also exhilaration that she had all going on at the same time. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, she even have a chance to even really enjoy and, 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 um, celebrate in her success of the show at all because of all of that was going on. Probably not. Right. Yeah. But glad she's doing better now. And oh, obviously, yeah. you know, we, we know that the rest is history, uh, in terms of, you know, her success on the show. So that's pretty great for her. So. I have a lot of conflicting theory, uh, feelings. I have a lot of conflicting feelings on season two because in some ways there are some things I really love, like the Blackwater episode. I love Tyrion's character arc. Like this is maximum Tyrion this season. Yeah. Uh, but as a whole, I actually feel like this is the weakest season of the show. Yeah. I actually find like this is where a lot of the different plot lines kind of uh, stumble a little bit and they just kind of get a little bit too drawn out. And, uh, I think that, I don't know, this to me was just, I, in my opinion, it's the weakest of the seasons. I know everybody's got their own that they think is the, the strongest and the weakest. This, in my opinion, is the weakest season of the show. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, after the strong performance of the first season and, you know, we, we come into the second season and they're now introducing so many more characters and it's their first time really having to juggle that much. Mm-hmm. And it almost seems like they're trying to get their footing. Like they're trying to put in so much information in seemingly a short period of time. I mean, when you've got that many characters, 
Um, it, it's seems like a short period of time, you know, and we can only give a little bit to everybody, but, um, no, I even remember the first time watching season two and just being really kind of confused by it. And I think, and not confused, um, it was just confused because it's, now here are all these other characters and there's so many things that are happening that I don't think I actually really fully appreciated everything that was happening until I've gone back and watch and rewatched it. Right, right. Um, I think on first glance, season two seems really kind of boring, maybe. This is very talky. Like, there's not much action that's going on. Um, but when you're going back and rewatching it, you're seeing so many things being put into place. And I think I enjoyed it more on additional viewings than when I first initially watched it. But yes, I can understand out of everything that we've seen in Game of Thrones, yeah, it's probably the weakest one. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that I've noticed on the rewatch that I didn't capture the first time. I do notice in this season there is a lot more, like, sex position, you know, where they are relying on, you know, uh, sexual encounters as a way to, like, forward aspects of the story. And that, to me, was something the show got very critical of, or the people have been very critical of for the show, and I think this was where it kind of got thrust into the forefront. But from an overall story perspective, I do kind of like the the overall idea. Like I said, there's some great stuff in the season. So I'm not saying like it's it it's my least favorite season, but that's it's a pretty high standard to me. Yeah. So one of the things that I like about this season, whereas the first season was kind of about the old guard starting to die off. And the second season is about this kind of power vacuum that gets created because you have this upheaval in King's Landing and you have Joffrey, who's the new king, but he's kind of tainted by the fact that, you know, Ned Stark put out that letter saying that Stannis is the rightful king. And, you know, Stannis has now spread that out throughout the Seven Kingdoms that he's the rightful heir and that Joffrey's a product of incest. So this has now started this like power vacuum. And so much of the characters this season are going through this kind of, um, you know, these stories where it's about their pursuit of power. Even the characters that aren't part of the War of the Five Kings, like even Theon, it's all about their pursuit of power. Uh, they're, they're climbing the ladder of chaos. Right. So that, to me, is kind of the overarching theme here. And I feel like all these different characters are kind of going through, uh, you know, some version of that. Except for Daenerys, who's just way out there in the Red Waste. Yeah, I have to say, as far as um, stuff with Daenerys goes, I think season two is probably my least favorite of her. The whole thing with her agree. and Karth. Yeah, the whole thing with her there. She is so annoying into the position of the people from Karth and have this girl basically this little girl come in and just demand and basically stomp her foot and have little tantrums it's like okay no this is not working <laughs> I just I just found her so annoying in huh. this season and I just I I don't think when I first watched it that I that I was that I felt that way about her, but I guess maybe now really seeing how different she is in the later seasons to this, 
It's like, wow, she was really annoying. Right. Well, and you can make an argument that season three may be her best season. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I, but I agree with you. This is my least favorite season for Daenerys as well. Just yeah. because she spends so much time kind of like, like you said, a little bit petulant in that she's just expecting all these different cities to, you know, these places to just welcome her in. Like, you know, she she's almost overvaluing her own name and her own legacy to a certain degree. And right. she's kind of being humbled by this kind of this kind of beggar status that she has now that she's kind of out in the in the red waste. But it is interesting the way her story does kind of parallel John's because they both kind of end up lost in an unfamiliar territory where right. she's in the red waste and John is north of the wall. They're both in areas that are outside of their comfort zone. They've both crossed the threshold into the to the beyond, into the unknown. So it's interesting seeing how they both learn lessons while they're out there. No, that's true. That's that's really true. A lot of times I I really kind of completely forget and I I neglect to really look at the parallels between the two of them. I mean because when it really boils down to it, this whole this whole series primarily is about the two of them and you know, obviously in then the last season that we just had, their two storylines converge, but um yeah, I really kind of forget that they're almost yin and yang you know just parallels in in many respects and i kind of forget about that yeah they're both learning to kind of navigate their way through like foreign systems Mm. you know john north of the wall dealing with the the wildlings and kind of their culture and hierarchy and the same thing with daenerys and karth kind of learning about the ins and outs and the workings of those different cultures. And so I think John does a little bit better with his than she does with hers. But I think it's interesting. Again, there's that contrast. Um, they're not necessarily seeking power yet. Daenerys thinks she's entitled to power and, and John is kind of on this kind of spy thing. So there's a little bit of difference, you know, there. Um, but then when you get to King's Landing and you get to Tyrion, like I said, this is maximum Tyrion. This is Tyrion living his best life. And in this case, he's got all the power, basically. Well, I think this is, this is maximum Tyrion. And I think also this is where Joffrey just goes off the rails. Absolutely. And I mean, obviously the, at the end or towards the end of season one, you know, Joffrey is just kind of getting a taste of his sadistic side. And then here in season two, it's like, good Lord, this little fucker. Wow. He's awful. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting stuff about Joffrey in terms of his psychology. I actually think that, you know, some of the stuff that gets done really well in season two is the psychology of the individual characters. Hmm. And Joffrey is a pure psychopath. Like, it, oh, yeah. it's, it's interesting the way he, he doesn't, um, I'm trying to think of how to say this. I mean, somebody who's majored in, uh, psychology would probably be better first to speak to this than I would. But, like, the, the way they portray, like, any interest shown to him, any kind of physical affection shown by a woman to him is immediately met with, like, violence. Yeah. Or, like, he, he, like, gets off on the idea of violence. 
And I really think that is like a psychopathic tendency. Yeah. And that's played very well because that's kind of like, that's kind of subtext. We just know that he's like a dick, right? But there's that kind of subtext in there. So all these characters have a lot of different layers, even Joffrey. Oh, yeah, definitely. And Tyrion's responsibility is just kind of rein him in. And even Tyrion can't rein him in. He can to a certain extent. You know, I could watch on repeat Tyrion smacking him in the face uh, when, <laughs> you know, when when the, the whole, like, skirmish breaks out in the in the streets there. But you know what I find even interesting, too? There was a moment between Cersei and Joffrey in um, the throne room, and Cersei slaps him. Uh-huh. And then she immediately, I mean, just the look that Lena Headey... Um, the way she changes her face so swiftly after she strikes him and immediately becomes submissive. Like, she's the mother. It's just this amazing dynamic in this scene because she's the mother. She's disciplining her child. But yet, he's the king. And he could put her to death because of what she just did. Right. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting the way... It gets played between the two of them because you, because you can see without words that power play that happens between the two of them just by the exchange of looks and the averting of eyes. And it's just, it's such a small moment, but for whatever reason, that just stands out in my mind so much the way that right. that was portrayed. It was really well done. Yeah. It's an intense scene. Yeah. And, and I think the actor, Jack Leeson, who plays Joffrey, does a really great job. I mean, he gets, you know, everybody hates him because they hate that character, but you have to be a pretty good actor to get people to hate you that much. No, and that's the thing that is so absolutely amazing to me. And I think one of the things when I was young that really drew me into any kind of um, theater or performance, anything like that, is the fact that He's a really amazing person. And you hear from all of his cast members and anybody that's worked with him that he's just this amazing, gracious, wonderful person. And I think one of the things, you know, going back to what I just said, that one of the things that always intrigued me with theater is having that separation between the character and the actual person. And it's like, wow, they can play this terrible, terrible, awful person, but but they're actually really not like that. They're actually this really good person or, or two people that play enemies or something. And then you see them in an interview and it's like, Oh, they're like the best of friends. And I I don't know. I just always thought that that um, dichotomy was always so incredibly interesting. Um, And, and likewise, um, actually just somebody that I, um, that I'm on the tour with today was telling me that he worked with, um, Oh my gosh, what is the guy that um, plays Tywin? Uh, is Charles Dance? Charles Dance, I think yeah. his name is. Um, he worked with um, him before. And he was telling me how just just really, really nice he was, but also really intense. He's like, we were having a moment backstage. I think it was a theater production or something. And he's like, we were having a moment backstage. And he told me, um, I think it was his birthday. And he's like, oh, you know, eat this cake. And he was just immediately was like, uh, yes, sir. How much do you want me to eat? <laughs> you know, it was just like, oh my gosh, I didn't want any, but it, I felt like I had to because it was so, um, intense, the, you know, the way that he said this, but he was just, um, it was just kind of cool hearing little, you know, behind the scenes stuff of, you know, 
working with one of the actors and, and seeing somebody who's so intense on screen and how their, their personality is just so completely different. Yeah. You would hope. Yeah. I mean, you don't want him to actually be like Joffrey. Yeah. And I, I love Tywin Lannister in yes. this season in particular. I love the pair up with he and Arya at Heron yes. Hall for that, that chunk of episodes. Yeah. Uh, I think that is a combination that, that was a big deviation from the books, but that worked so well yeah. because those two characters, those two actors had such great chemistry. They did, and I especially love the scene where Tywin, he senses something's up. Something's up with her because of the way that she says, my lord, instead of my lord, I guess. It was something like that. You know, uh, Leviosa, Leviosa. You know, it's just... It's the highborn highborn dialogue. Right, right, right. But I just, I love the way that he kind of challenged her and was like, wait a minute, you're supposed to be from like it was a I don't know what it was a blacksmith or something that she was saying her fake father was, and uh, and just how quick she was to you know come back with an answer and how um, just this back and forth that they had and and you just I mean we've seen up until this point how how street smart and how witty Arya is, but then to go toe to toe with. Tywin Lannister, you know, was just great to see that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it is kind of weird that that Tywin couldn't put together the the idea that it was Arya Stark. Like, yeah. you think that he should have just had some kind of sense about it, but uh, he did not. But it plays it plays to the benefit of the show because that is some of the best performance that we get from two actors in this entire season. Yeah, yeah. We also get her and Gendry together. We get Arya and Gendry, and we see their kind of friendship and their bond develop a little bit, which I think is really great as well. We see them end up with the uh, the Brotherhood, uh, you know, all of that. I, I just really like Arya's storyline in this season. I do too, and I hope we get to see a, reuni- a reunion between the two of them. Yeah, it's still, it still sticks in my craw that yeah. in Season 7... We have Gendry meeting Jon Snow. We have Gendry with the Hound, and they never bring up Arya's name once. No, not at all. That still that's going to bother me for it, it. To me, it's one of the it's one of the things I did not like in season seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like most of season seven. I really like it a lot, but that bit just ah, it's just such a missed opportunity. Yeah, one of those little things that like is always going to bother me. You know, one of the things that bothered me while I was watching rewatching season two was uh, the lighting in some of the locations, especially Dragonstone. Like, I mm. get Dragonstone is dark, but good lord, they could have lit it with more than just a tea light. Right. It was so dark, and it was. And as I was rewatching it, I said, "You know what? It was no wonder that in this last season." Why I didn't recognize, you know, when, when Daenerys was like, oh, well, we've seen this location before. I was like, we have? I don't remember this map room. And then I'm going back and watching this. I'm like, oh, that's the room. But good God, you could hardly see it in season right. two. I mean, they, they did so much better in lighting 
in the later season when we see Dragonstone again. Um, but yeah, I, I completely did not remember, um, that room at all. And even when I'm watching it, it's like, gosh, I can hardly see it. They have it completely lit with just like a handful of tea lights. It's so dark. Uh-huh. But you know what's interesting, you know, since we were talking about Dragonstone, um, and I agree with you about the lighting. I think you're, you're spot on, particularly in how they lit it in season seven. Um, I know they, I know they shot mostly day shots in season seven where they're mostly night shots in season two, but I want to move on to Stannis Baratheon because one thing that sticks out to me on this rewatch is we know this is where Stannis kind of begins his journey on the show. When we get to the end of, you know, season five, we start to see how that journey ends. There were a lot of people who are unhappy with the way Stannis's character's character brings about his own demise. Mm. But I would say when I go back and I rewatch it, all of Stannis's actions towards the end are are based on things that we get clues to in this season. Mm. Like his his desire, his like thirst for power, like he does not he he is pretty scrupulous. Like he he would do those things that he did. Yeah. Like he is not he is not a good dude. We root for him because he's the opposition to Joffrey and he gets a couple good character moments, but Stannis is not a good dude in any way. No, not at all. And I think one of the only reasons I really, really liked Samus was because of his daughter and right. because of Davos. Right, yeah. <laughs> he had great people around him. Yeah. But, yeah, he was awful. Yeah, and I think when you go back and you kind of see these episodes in season two and you're, and you're getting an eye on his character, I think everything he does later is born out of actions that he would take. Like, it does not feel like a betrayal of his character at all where he ends no. up. mm you know, I think that's one of the things that that really, really stands out. You know, it, like, he's ready to, to choke Melisandre to death at a certain point. Yeah. You know, he is he is not a good dude. And I think there's a lot of people who uh, thought that there was some sort of betrayal of character there. I do not believe that to be the case at all. Now, that being said, I, I do love kind of the, the Blackwater episode and all that. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, another character that I wanted to talk about, though, is Sansa Stark, because, again, as I go through and I do this rewatch, I know a lot of people who did not like Sansa. I I am recognizing a lot more power in Sansa's character on this rewatch than I ever noticed the first time through. I definitely do in season two. I did not care for her in season one, but you really have to... Uh, appreciate the game that she's playing and it's it's ever so more evident in season two right well i mean she considers pushing joffrey you know off the off the platform in like the first episode of the season when she shows when he shows her ned stark's head on a spike yeah so you can see it you can see the contemplation there and you can see that she's learning to play the game a little bit She's not perfect at it yet. She's still kind of learning the ropes, but she is kind of starting to figure it out. Like, Shay is another one who kind of teaches her the ropes. Cersei, way down the line in the Blackwater episode, 
teaching her a little bit as well. So we're seeing that kind of character development out of her based on these interactions we have. And I talked about that when we did the season one recap. That's great character development. That's well built into the show. Well, I think one of the most um, telling scenes with her is uh, very early on. I think it was just in the first episode where um, they're supposed to be having the mini tournament, you know, the mini duels. And there's the one guy that shows up and and they um, he had been drinking a little bit and they shove the wine down his throat. And, And the way that she's able to manipulate Joffrey in that scene is really, really good. You know, it's Joffrey's name day and it's like, Oh, you can't. And she realizes, you know, she shouldn't have said that. And it's like, Oh, well, you can't do this because it's bad luck to, you know, kill somebody on your name day or whatever it is that she says. And I love that the hound like totally goes along with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, you carry that karma with you the rest of the year and um and oh this guy this guy's a fool oh that is you are brilliant you saw this and no one else did he would make a great fool for your court i mean just the way that she's able to manipulate and save this guy basically right um is just brilliant although granted he probably should have just died right there because instead of going through all of the, you know, being Jeff- Joffrey's fool, it would be a worse death. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of great stuff in her character this season. I think she's a really underrated character. I just know so many people that say a lot of nasty stuff about yeah. the character. And I, I just don't think that's warranted when I look back on it. You know, I think that people react to her in the moment, but. Uh, I think she was a very smart character throughout most of these early starts, uh, early seasons of the show. Well, I think with her, it can be, I think with her, it can be a little bit difficult because a lot of her stuff is very internalized. Mm-hmm. You don't get a lot of her thought process or her um, motivation for anything verbally or externally. It's all internalized and i think sophie turner does a great job in portraying that and it yeah it it's i think it's difficult for some people to maybe get that because in some aspects it makes sansa seem really cold yeah and uh but that's the thing is that she's being quiet she's being stoic and those gears are grinding inside her head like nobody's business you know, right. she's silently observing everything. But yes, it does at some points make her seem very standoffish and cold. But um no, I think I I definitely did not appreciate her until um later on. But the sparks started in season two. Totally agree. Totally agree. It's also funny to watch like sophie turner's height as the show goes on oh my gosh yeah she is like a good foot taller each season like at at a certain point she's gonna be like eight feet tall like (laughs) lady of winterfell i especially Uh, she's like a good foot taller yeah i especially love to see her next to kit harrington as Jon snow (laughs) i know oh it's so funny uh another character who i want to talk about is rob stark yeah because you know going back and doing this rewatch one thing I, 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 is more obvious is Rob was destined to fail the entire time. Yeah. 
bad choice after bad choice. Great in battle, horrible leader, and he had no idea what he was fighting for. Like, he, all he wants to do is kill Joffrey, and then after that, he has no desire to to take the Iron Throne. So what is the point? His his war is literally a war to kill Joffrey. It's just vengeance for yeah. the death of his father. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's like a vengeance pact, and that's really it. And it's, it's so funny because you see him, every chance he gets to make a strong decision, he tends to, to um, he tends to make the wrong one. Yeah. You know, there, and, but, but in his defense, there are complicated decisions that he has to make. And there's that scene where, I believe it's in season two. Yeah, it's in season two, uh, where they are at the bridge before Catelyn goes in to talk to Walder Frey, where she's going to marry off Rob to one of Walder's daughters and she's going to marry off Arya to one of his sons. Before Catelyn strikes that deal, she is talking to Rob, and I believe it's Theon who talks to Rob as well. And then they get advice, advice from Sir Roderick in addition to that. And all three of them tell Rob something that eventually does happen. Mm. And so he's getting the advice right there. He's People are telling him about the phrase, telling him about what they can do. And, you know, he doesn't ultimately listen he ends up marrying talisa and you know we all know what happens in season three but he just keeps making bad choices and it's it sucks because rob's such a likable character it he is and i mean and he also um puts too much faith into theon too and and catelyn tells him don't trust the Greyjoys." right and you know he sends theon back home to try and, you know, get the Greyjoys over on their side, too, and then completely loses Winterfell because of it. Right, yeah, absolutely. And that's another, you know, weakness that's there. Another weakness in Rob. Now, again, to be fair, these are tough decisions that he has yeah. to make, but he was not, you know, Tywin Lannister in that in that position would have made different choices than Rob Stark made. Oh, definitely. And I think maybe that just is Ty- would be because Tywin has more experience, or maybe he just doesn't have the same kind of moral conflicts that somebody like Rob would have. Well, yeah, I think those moral conflicts and that um, uh, trust that he has, and um, he really—I mean, you can really see how much he takes after his father. That he right, takes yeah. after Ned Stark, you know, because he, you know tries to be the noble person and everything and and to put so much faith into those around him and it just completely falls apart yeah yeah and i think sansa says it you know later on down the line in season six where she says to john that she loved ned and she loved rob but they made really stupid choices yeah and she's a hundred percent correct you know but again they're difficult choices which is what i love about the the uh, textures of this show is that every action seems to have other consequences that are unintended. And I think that's one of the great things about Game of Thrones as a whole is the, you know, the unintended consequences of every decision that gets made. Yeah. You know, we talked a little bit about uh, Rob, but then you also have Catelyn, who is trying her best to protect her daughters. And Jamie Lannister is their only bargaining chip. 
So, you know, you've got her and the choices that she makes to, to send Jamie away with Brienne because she's afraid that the other soldiers are going to kill Jamie. It, it's, it's that conflict that makes this show great. I mean, I, I love Catelyn Stark. She's another character who I, I have so much more appreciation for on this rewatch. You know, I do too. And I think going back and rewatching this, it makes me that much more upset that Lady Stoneheart did not become a part of the series. Yeah, I agree. But I think her character, it, it, her character has very simple motivations, but they are pure motivations. And yeah. she is strong and she is a fighter. And I, I like that about Catelyn Stark a lot. And it's, it's interesting too, because, uh, you know, she sent to kind of broker that peace arrangement between Renly and Stannis, which ends up not working. Right. Because then we've got, you know, whole, Renly's whole storyline that really gets fleshed out a lot more here as well. We meet Bran of Tarth and, you know, all those different things that, that happen. Renly's only claim seems to be that nobody likes Stannis. <laughs> right. You know, and I think, ironically enough, that may not be a legitimate claim to the throne, but Renly's not wrong there. Stannis is a right. dick. Yeah. And again, it's just another layer. And he seemed just and fair, and the way he um, just would deal with people, you know? He was... I don't know. I, I really liked him, and I, it was sad that he was only in the show for such a short period of time. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, he's somebody who would have made a good king, probably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think that he uh, he was one who was probably not ready to play the game, or at least not ready to, like, stoop to the, the, the black magic level that, that Stannis was. Yeah. And I think that's one. Of, that's another one of the interesting aspects of this show, too, is with the birth of the dragons we start to now get introduced into this kind of magical aspect of the show. We had that, of course, with the White Walkers, you know, in the prologue of the of the series, but you know, here we're starting to get more and more magic because we're getting introduced to the dragons again, being a little bit older and getting used to a world with dragons. We have warlocks, we have the Red Priestess, Melisandre, you know, we have the Faceless Men. So we're getting into that kind of mysticism that's starting to come into play. And I think that's kind of an interesting idea, too. That the old world has kind of died off, this new world is starting to emerge, but this new world has old world elements of magic and mysticism. You know, and one of the things that I completely forgot about, because they didn't really go anywhere with it, is the whole thing with that red comet. They show it a number of times in season two, and I think that's pretty much all that happens with it. Yeah, there were some creative choices that changed uh, the way, like, the series trajectory was set out to be, but there's always been, you know, theories about the Red Comet, but I think one of the things that they mentioned in the show is that it signifies the return of dragons to the world. Yeah, that is, uh, I think the last thing that they say about it was that, because um, what they were saying, oh, it's... Lannister red or it's red for victory for Rob's, you know, bloody war or something. But then it was like, no, it's, they're saying it's, it's to hail the return of dragons. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And they kind of just leave it at that. Cause isn't it, doesn't it, 
have a bit more mystery or something to do in the books or it's mentioned a lot more in the books or something like that? I think it's it definitely has a little bit more kind of mystery around it in the books, but yeah. uh, it, it's kind of been obviously kind of left behind in the show a little bit. Yeah, it was such a random, like, throwaway thing that was in there. It's like, okay, they could have just left that out, but all right. One thing that we did see in season two that we didn't see as much of in the first season is where Game of Thrones really starts to shine. And what they would do is they would take characters and pair them off in little pairs of two. And, you know, they would kind of just put them on these different journeys. And we see that in this season as well, where we're seeing, you know, John and Egret for a while. We're seeing Tywin and we're seeing... um Arya as well. We're seeing Braun and Tyrion. So they really did a great job of these little kind of two by two adventures that they've told. Jamie and Brienne, another one. And they've, they've done this historically throughout the show. It really started here in season two. And I love the way they handle those characters that way. Yeah. Cause you really just, it, it, uh, it enables you to really get a sense of each of those characters when they're just playing off of one other person. Yeah. Um, cause you get that really great back and forth. And yeah, you're right. That is one of the areas where Game of Thrones really excels is in that the rapport between characters one on one. Right. And then of course, you know, we have John's story that takes him out to Craster's Keep. And that whole disgusting dude out there, Craster's yeah, gross. I, I forgot how gross he was. Him and the phrase. I don't know why. I just, like, man, I think my my brain just kind of tried to forget about it. But going back and watching, I was like, man, they're worse than I remember. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, you know, it's where John, you know, again, we, we talked about earlier about how John and Daenerys are learning the intricacies of these systems that exist in foreign places. Yeah. You know, John learning about Craster sacrificing his sons to the White Walkers. And then on top of that, the fact that Gior Mormont knew and yet yeah. still kind of let this, let this arrangement linger, didn't do anything about it. And because of this kind of greater good, you know, so John's kind of learning about some of those kind of things as well. Yeah, yeah, you have to, I guess, sometimes <laughs> forgive the little things to look at the bigger picture. Absolutely, yeah. And I think John and Daenerys both kind of learned that this season as well. Because you got, you know, Daenerys's whole vision in the House of the Undying, uh, you know, after they take her dragons, and there's there's that whole bit. I actually really love that vision in the House of the Undying. Yeah, they did a good job with that. And I wonder if that whole bit of symbolism in there, as she's reaching out to touch that snow-covered Iron Throne, and she turns away right before she touches it, is that symbolic of of what her fate will be? I think so. I think it's possible. I think it's absolutely possible. You know, they, they also show her going beyond the wall. And she did. We've, we've seen her, yeah. Yeah, and the question really is, you know, what's going to happen in King's Landing? What What is that? Is that damage from wildfire? Is that damage from dragonfire? It looks like something is going to happen to King's Landing. Yeah. You know, so I think that's another 
uh, thing that we have to look at there. And of course, she finds out that she's been betrayed by Zarozano Donxus, the guy's name I can never really remember, <laughs> uh, and one of her handmaidens. And she ends up locking them in the tomb. And, you know, that's really her story. It, it, her story is very thin. Yeah. Very thin this season. Yeah, it was my, my least favorite of hers. And John is eventually brought to Mance Raider. Um, of course, we don't meet Mance until season three, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, but we also get the White Walkers showing up, and Sam gets a look at the White Walker army. We get the introduction of Dragonglass. Yeah, we get the introduction of Dragonglass. So, I mean, one of the things about this season, like I said, it is my least favorite, but it is sprawling in scope. Oh, yeah, that's... That's that's something that they they never lack of. There's so much information that's thrust at you. Right. Yeah. Yeah, like, considering, like, season one had a relatively narrow scope. This one, the scope is just gigantic, because now all these characters are scattered. Like, we haven't even talked about Bran yet, and his kind of understanding of his wolf dreams, and, mm. you know, how Asha kind of knows a little bit about that, because Bran's now started off on his journey. And then Theon doing this, the dumb shit move of taking Winterfell. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, all because, all because of his own daddy issues, you know? So, I mean, again, this is, this is such a sprawling season in terms of its scope that, you know, again, uh, it's not my favorite, but I, I am admiring the ambition of it. Oh, yeah. De- definitely. I mean, and we have the introduction of Ramsey as well. For some reason, I was like, gosh, I, I kind of forgot that he was introduced so early. Right. You know, in, in season two. And I, you always think of, you know, everything with him later on in the later seasons. But, um, yeah, it, it, it amazes me how many newer characters we got in this season as well and like i said i remember watching it when the first time i was watching it it was almost like sensory overload there was so much that was happening there was so much that was discussed uh and there were so many new people it was it was hard for me to kind of keep track of everything and i don't think i really fully appreciated everything that was uh, put into play or that was uh, transpiring. I, I couldn't see the bigger picture at that time um, until I go back and watch it and rewatch it again. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I, I, just so many characters. And then when we get to season three, there's going to be even more and more and more. Yeah, I know. Uh, and then, of course, I mean, the highlight of season two to me is the Blackwater episode. Yeah. It is stunning in its scope and the way it's pulled off. I mean, even after... So many seasons of the constantly increasing budget where they can do bigger uh, and bigger and bigger things with the show. This still stands out as one of the great episodes of Thrones. No, it it really, really does. And um, it's amazing what they just the fight. Well, fight choreography and any of the battles in Game of Thrones. I mean, we talk so much of, oh, they stand, this is where they stand out. This is where they stand out. Well, this is another standout because I think every season has, minus, you know, the first season has these amazing battles that happen. And, uh-huh. uh, yeah, it's just incredible the amount of coordination and, um, just the production value that, ha- that goes on 
with creating these scenes. So well done. The editing and, um, yeah, I, that just never ceases to amaze me. And thinking, yes, that was in season two. They didn't have nearly the budget that they do now. Right. Yeah. And look what they were able to accomplish. It was just incredible. Yeah. Blackwater holds up as a really great piece of storytelling as well for Tyrion's character. For yeah. Joffrey's character, for Cersei's character, for the Hound's character in particular. Mm-hmm. You know, the Hound gets a lot of great character moments here where you've seen the Hound's character kind of building and building and building, almost ready to be launched into to a form of a redemption arc for himself. And I think this is where it, it he's just fed up. He's just had enough yeah. of it. And he's en- has had enough of allegiances. He's had enough of being somebody's dog right and i think that puts him on a whole new trajectory which you know we obviously know where that goes and it's great so i think that uh, there's a lot of great storytelling in there as well you know aside from the fact that there are all the great set pieces and all the great action and the gore and all that stuff you know Tyrion's character gets really great stuff he learns about you know he he finds himself uh seeing within himself leadership emerge and even on the battlefield oh yeah so it's a really, really strong episode there, that Blackwater episode. And, of course, the wildfire plot. Really great stuff. So I I, I do enjoy that aspect of Season 2 a lot. I mean, I enjoy Season 2, just not as much as I like the other, the other uh, seasons of the show. There's another thing with Season 2 that I didn't remember... Um, you know, we, we talked about from season one, how where there were different themes in, in the score that were emerging and you could just mm-hmm. start to make out little bits of like Arya's theme and the Stark theme. And, and, you know, we definitely get them in season two, but I just did not remember how much they really started to unravel that, um, Lannister theme. Yeah. The reigns of Castamere. I mean, I think there was even at one point that Tyrion is like whistling it as he's walking through King's Landing. Um, yeah, that, I, that, the, I think the reigns of Castamere is probably one of my favorite themes of all of the different themes for Games of Thrones. Games yeah, of it, Thrones, really? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really great. I mean, Ramin Javadi, his, his musical choices are incredible. I love hearing the further development of Daenerys's theme. Yeah, yeah. Like, like the seeds of where that theme is in season seven were planted in season one, and it just slowly grows with the character. And I think that is just such a brilliant choice by a composer to just slowly add layers to yeah. the musical theme for the character to eventually kind of crescendos. And I think that's just incredible. Uh, incredible composition uh you know his his work on the show is is the gold standard for television oh i completely agree i completely agree i mean there's so many different ways that we've compared game of thrones to anything that you would see in the movie theaters and the score is definitely one of those that deserves to be included in that oh i agree absolutely so I think ultimately, I mean, the stories in season two about this kind of, this kind of grasping for power, this everybody starting to try to, to claim power, trying to fill this power vacuum that's been created by a tainted king, I think is really the, the story that kind of rules the day. But it's also 
there's a lot of there's a lot of um, tumultuousness that comes with that quest for power. And some characters, you know, they achieve it and then they lose it. And some characters are constantly chasing it. You know, all those characters we, we talked about. Theon kind of acquires that power when he takes Winterfell. Stannis is searching for it. You know, all these different characters are trying to gain power. Uh, and then a lot of them fail. A lot of them fail. Stannis fails. Theon fails. You know, and I think that, you know, that's, that's part of it. That's a part of this kind of, um, you know, that quest for power is the loss as well and how you recover from that loss. And that's pretty much life outside of Game of Thrones, just in general, right? Very true. Very true. And I think it tees up a season three that is really kind of the end of maybe the first act of this show, of this Mm. series. Yeah. You know, I try to think of, like, when the first act ends. I really think the first act ends in season three. Well, let's get into that when we go over the recap for season three. All right. So we'll do that next time. Yeah. All right, so you guys have heard our thoughts on Game of Thrones Season 2, but we'd like to hear yours as well. So hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at NerdFlixChill. You can also check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you are listening on one of those platforms, go ahead and throw us a five-star review. We would greatly appreciate that. That really helps out our show. Uh, Also, you can find all of our new podcasts over at LRM online.com where you can find uh, our show as well as a few other really great podcasts that you should definitely check out while you're there want to thank all of you guys for listening and until next time may the force be with you because the night is dark and full of terrors <laughs>